I love this book, and you must too, since you've listened along this far. If you want to hear some of my other favorites, then check out the Sleepy Bookshelf premium feed. There are no ads, and you can try it free for seven days. You'll find a link in the show notes to learn more and sign up. Good evening, and welcome to the Sleepy Bookshelf, where we put down our worries from the day and pick up a good book. I'm Elizabeth, your host, and I'm so pleased to have you here with me. Tonight we'll be continuing with The Hound of the Baskervilles, but before that, we'll take a moment to relax and get ready for sleep. Concentrate on how your body feels and where you are holding any tension. Take a big stretch and allow those areas to fully relax and sink into your bed. Now let's take some nice deep breaths. Inhale and collect all your thoughts and concerns from the day. And exhale, letting them all go. Lovely. In the last episode, Sir Henry reported to Holmes that since arriving in London, he was missing one new brown boot, which he had left outside his room in his hotel to be varnished. Dr. Mortimer then told Sir Henry all about the curse of the hound and the newspaper report about Sir Charles Baskerville's death. Sir Henry requested some time alone to process the information. The two men left on foot, and almost immediately, Holmes and Watson began to follow them. By the time they had reached Regent Street, Holmes confirmed a cab had been trailing Sir Henry and Dr. Mortimer. Holmes and Watson managed to catch the cab's number and note that the passenger had a full black beard before the cab sped away. On the way to the hotel to meet Sir Henry again for lunch, Holmes enlisted help in trying to locate the newspaper where the clippings may have been cut from to create the mysterious note sent to Sir Henry. Upon reaching the hotel for lunch, Sir Henry was enraged with the staff as he now appeared to also be missing an old black boot. Over lunch, the original new brown boot was found underneath a bureau where the men were certain it hadn't been before. Sir Henry finally decided to continue on to Baskerville Hall along with Dr. Mortimer and Dr. Watson as chaperones. When Holmes and Watson got back to Baker Street that evening, two telegrams arrived. One confirming that Barrymore, Baskerville Hall's groundskeeper, was still in Devon, ruling him out as the spy. 
and the other confirming that the newspaper with the missing clippings had not been located. It is here that we pick back up tonight, with the doorbell at Baker Street ringing. So, lie back and relax as I turn to the next pages of The Hound of the Baskervilles. Chapter 5 continued. The ring at the bell proved to be something even more satisfactory than an answer, however, for the door opened and a rough-looking fellow entered who was evidently the cabman himself. I got a message from head office that a gent at this address had been inquiring for number 2704, said he. I've driven my cab for seven years and never a word of complaint. I came here straight from the yard to ask you to your face what you had against me. I have nothing in the world against you, my good man, said Holmes. On the contrary, I have half a sovereign for you if you will give me a clear answer to my questions. Well, I've had a good day and no mistake said the cabman with a grin. What was it you wanted to ask, sir? First of all, your name and address, said Holmes, in case I want you again. The cabman answered, John Clayton, 3 Turpy Street, the borough. My cab is out of Shipley's Yard near Waterloo Station. Sherlock Holmes made a note of it. Now, Clayton, tell me all about the fair who came and watched this house at 10 o'clock this morning and afterwards followed the two gentlemen down Regent Street. The man looked surprised and a little embarrassed. Why, there's no good my telling you things, for you seem to know as much as I do already, said he. The truth is that gentleman told me he was a detective and that I was to say nothing about him to anyone. Well, my good fellow, said Holmes, this is a very serious business and you may find yourself in a pretty bad position if you try to hide anything from me. You say that your fare told you that he was a detective. Did he say anything more? He mentioned his name, said Clayton. Holmes cast a swift glance of triumph at me. Oh, he mentioned his name, did he? That was imprudent. What was the name that he mentioned? His name, said the cabman, was Mr. Sherlock Holmes. Never have I seen my friend more completely taken aback than by the cabman's reply. For an instant, he sat in silent amazement. Then he burst into a hearty laugh. A <laughs> touch, Watson, an undeniable touch, said he. 
I feel a foil as quick and supple as my own. He got home upon me very prettily that time. So, his name was Sherlock Holmes, was it? Yes, sir, said Clayton. That was the gentleman's name. Excellent, Holmes replied. Tell me where you picked him up and all that occurred. Clayton looked thoughtful. He hailed me at half past nine in Trafalgar Square. He said that he was a detective and he offered me two guineas if I would do exactly what he wanted all day and ask no questions. I was glad enough to agree. First, we drove down to the Northumberland Hotel and waited there until two gentlemen came out and took a cab from the rank. We followed their cab until it pulled up somewhere near here. This very door, said Holmes. Well, I couldn't be sure of that, but I dare say my fair knew all about it, said he. We pulled up halfway down the street and waited an hour and a half. Then the two gentlemen passed us walking and we followed down Baker Street until we got three quarters down Regent Street. Then my gentleman threw up the trap and he cried that I should drive right away to Waterloo Station as hard as I could go. We were there under the ten minutes. Then he paid up his two guineas like a good one and away he went to the station. Only just as he was leaving, he turned around and he said, It might interest you to know that you have been driving Mr. Sherlock Holmes. That's how I come to know the name. I see, said Holmes, and you saw no more of him. Clayton shook his head not after he went into the station. And how would you describe Mr. Sherlock Holmes? said he. The cabman scratched his head. Well, he wasn't altogether such an easy gentleman to describe. I'd put him at 40 years of age, and he was of a middle height, two or three inches shorter than you, sir, He was dressed like a toff, and he had a black beard cut square at the end and a pale face. I don't know as I could say more than that. Nothing more that you can remember? Holmes asked. No, sir, nothing, said Clayton. Well then, here is your half-sovereign, said Holmes, handing the man a coin. There is another one waiting for you if you can bring me any more information. Good night. Good night, sir. And thank you. John Clayton departed, chuckling, and Holmes turned to me with a shrug of his shoulders and a rueful smile. Snap goes our third thread, and we end where we began, said he cunning rascal. He knew our number, knew that Sir Henry Baskerville had consulted me, spotted who I was in Regent Street, conjectured that I had got the number of the cab and would try to lay my hands on the driver, 
and so sent back this audacious message. I tell you, Watson, this time we have got a foreman who is worthy of our steel. I've been checkmated in London. I can only wish you better luck in Devonshire, but I'm not easy in my mind about it. About what? said I. About sending you, said Holmes. It's an ugly business, Watson. An ugly, dangerous business. And the more I see of it, the less I like it. Yes, my dear fellow, you may laugh, but I give you my word that I shall be very glad to have you back safe and sound in Baker Street once more. Chapter 6 Baskerville Hall Sir Henry Baskerville and Dr. Mortimer were ready upon the appointed day, and we started as arranged for Devonshire. Mr. Sherlock Holmes drove with me to the station and gave me his last parting injunctions and advice. I will not bias your mind by suggesting theories or suspicions, Watson, said he. I wish you simply to report facts in the fullest possible manner to me, and you can leave me to do the theorizing. What sort of facts? I asked. Anything which may seem to have a bearing, however indirect, upon the case, said Holmes and especially the relations between young Baskerville and his neighbours, or any fresh particulars concerning the death of Sir Charles. I have made some inquiries myself in the last few days, but the results have, I fear, been negative. One thing only appears to be certain, and that is that Mr. James Desmond, who is the next heir, is an elderly gentleman of a very amiable disposition, so that this persecution does not arise from him. I really think that we may eliminate him entirely from our calculations. There remain the people who actually surround Sir Henry Baskerville upon the moor. Would it not be well in the first place to get rid of this Barrymore couple? Said I. Well, by no means, replied Holmes. You could not make a greater mistake. If they are innocent, it would be a cruel injustice. And if they are guilty, we should be giving up all chance of bringing it home to them. No, no, we will preserve them upon our list of suspects. Then there is a groom at the hall, if I remember right. There are two moorland farmers... There is our friend, Dr. Mortimer, who I believe to be entirely honest. And there is his wife, of whom we know nothing. There is this naturalist, Stapleton, and there is his sister, who is said to be a young lady of attractions. There is Mr. Franklin of Laughter Hall, who is also an unknown factor. And there are one or two other neighbors, These are the folk who must be your very special study. I will do my best, I said. You have arms, I suppose, asked Holmes. Yes, 
I replied. I thought it as well to take them. Most certainly, Holmes agreed. Keep your revolver near you night and day, and never relax your precautions. Our friends had already secured a first-class carriage and were waiting for us upon the platform. No, we have no news of any kind, said Dr. Mortimer in answer to my friend's questions. I can swear to one thing, and that is that we have not been shadowed during these last two days. We have never gone out without keeping a sharp watch, and no one could have escaped our notice. You have always kept together, I presume? Asked Holmes. Except yesterday afternoon, said Mortimer. I usually give up one day to pure amusement when I come to town, so I spent it at the Museum of the College of Surgeons. And I went to look at the folk in the park, said Baskerville. But we had no trouble of any kind, Mortimer added. Mm, It was imprudent all the same, said Holmes, shaking his head and looking very grave. I beg, Sir Henry, that you will not go about alone. Some great misfortune will befall you if you do. Did you get your other boot? No, sir, said he. It is gone forever. Indeed, that is very interesting. Well, goodbye, Holmes added as the train began to glide down the platform. Bear in mind, Sir Henry, one of the phrases in that strange old legend which Dr. Mortimer has read to us, and avoid the moor in those hours of darkness when the powers of evil are exalted. I looked back at the platform when we had left it far behind and saw the tall, austere figure of Holmes standing motionless and gazing after us. The journey was a swift and pleasant one, and I spent it in making the more intimate acquaintance of my two companions and in playing with Dr. Mortimer's spaniel. In a very few hours, the brown earth had become ruddy, the brick had changed to granite, and red cows grazed in well-hedged fields where the lush grasses and more luxuriant vegetation spoke of a richer, if a damper, climate. Young Baskerville stared eagerly out of the window and cried aloud with delight as he recognized the familiar features of the Devon scenery. I have been over a good part of the world since I left it, Dr. Watson, but I have never seen a place to compare with it. I never saw a Devonshire man who did not swear by his county, I remarked. It depends on the breed of men quite as much as the county, said Dr. Mortimer. But you were very young when you last saw Baskerville Hall, were you not? I was a boy in my teens at the time of my father's death and had never seen the hall, for he lived in a little cottage on the south coast, 
said Sir Henry. Thence I went straight to a friend in America. I tell you, it is all as new to me as it is to Dr. Watson, and I am as keen as possible to see them all. Are you? Then your wish is easily granted, for there is your first sight of them all, said Dr. Mortimer, pointing out of the carriage window. Over the green squares of the fields and the low curve of a wood, there rose in the distance a grey, melancholy hill with a strange, jagged summit, dim and vague in the distance, like some fantastic landscape in a dream. Baskerville sat for a long time, his eyes fixed upon it, and I read upon his eager face how much it meant to him. This first sight of that strange spot where the men of his blood had held sway so long and left their mark so deep. There he sat with his tweed suit and his American accent in the corner of a prosaic railway carriage, And yet, as I looked at his dark and expressive face, I felt more than ever how true a descendant he was of that long line of high-blooded, fiery, and masterful men. There were pride, valor, and strength in his thick brows, his sensitive nostrils, and his large hazel eyes. If on that forbidding moor a difficult and dangerous quest should lie before us, this was at least a comrade for whom one might venture to take a risk with the certainty that he would bravely share it. The train pulled up at a small wayside station and we all descended. Outside, beyond the low, white fence, A wagonette with a pair of cobs was waiting. Our coming was evidently a great event, for station master and porters clustered round us to carry our luggage. It was a sweet, simple country spot, but I was surprised to observe that by the gate there stood two soldierly men in dark uniforms who leaned upon their short rifles and glanced keenly at us as we passed. The coachman, a hard-faced, gnarled little fellow, saluted Sir Henry Baskerville, and in a few minutes we were flying swiftly down the broad, white road. Rolling pasture lands curved upward on either side of us, and old gabled houses peeped out from amid the thick green foliage. But behind the peaceful and sunlit countryside, there rose ever dark against the evening sky, the long, gloomy curve of the moor broken by the jagged and sinister hills. The wagonette swung round into a side road 
and we curved upward through deep lanes worn by centuries of wheels, high banks on either side, heavy with dripping moss and fleshy heart's tongue ferns. Bronzing bracken and mottled bramble gleamed in the light of the sinking sun. Still steadily rising, we passed over a narrow granite bridge and skirted a noisy stream which gushed swiftly down, foaming and roaring amid the grey boulders. Both road and stream wound up through a valley dense with scrub oak and fir. At every turn, Baskerville gave an exclamation of delight, looking about him and asking countless questions. To his eyes, all seemed beautiful, but to me, a tinge of melancholy lay upon the countryside, which bore so clearly the mark of the waning year. Yellow leaves carpeted the lanes and fluttered down upon us as we passed. The rattle of our wheels died away as we drove through drifts of rotting vegetation. Sad gifts, as it seemed to me, for nature to throw before the carriage of the returning heir of the Baskervilles. Suddenly, Dr. Mortimer cried, What is this? A steep curve of heath-clad land, an outlying spur of the moor, lay in front of us. On the summit, hard and clear, like an equestrian statue upon its pedestal, was a mounted soldier, dark and stern, his rifle poised ready over his forearm. He was watching the road along which we travelled. What is this, Perkins? asked Dr. Mortimer. Our driver half turned in his seat. There's a convict escaped from Princetown, sir. He's been out three days now, and the warders watch every road and every station. But they've had no sight of him yet. The farmers about here don't like it, sir, and that's a fact. Well, I understand that they get five pounds if they can give information, said Mortimer. Yes, sir, the driver said. But the chance of five pounds is but a poor thing compared to the chance of having your throat cut. You see, it isn't like any ordinary convict. This is a man that would stick at nothing. Who is he then? Mortimer asked. It is Selden, the Notting Hill murderer, said Perkins. I remembered the case well for it was one in which Holmes had taken an interest on account of the peculiar ferocity of the crime and the wanton brutality which had marked all the actions of the assassin. The commutation of his death sentence had been due to some doubts 
as to his complete sanity, so atrocious was his conduct. Our wagonette had topped a rise, and in front of us rose the huge expanse of the moor, mottled with gnarled and craggy cairns and tors. A cold wind swept down from it and sent us shivering. Somewhere there, on that desolate plain, was lurking this fiendish man, hiding in a burrow like a wild beast, his heart full of malignancy against the whole race which had cast him out. It needed but this to complete the grim suggestiveness of the barren waste, the chilling wind, and the darkling sky. Even Baskerville fell silent and pulled his overcoat more closely around him. We had left the fertile country behind and beneath us. We looked back on it now, the slanting rays of a low sun turning the streams to threads of gold, and the glowing on the red earth new turned by the plough and the broad tangle of the woodlands. The road in front of us grew bleaker and wilder over huge russet and olive slopes sprinkled with giant boulders. Now and then we passed a moorland cottage walled and roofed with stone with no creeper to break its harsh outline. Suddenly, we looked down into a cup-like depression, patched with stunted oaks and firs, which had been twisted and bent by the fury of years of storm. Two high, narrow towers rose over the trees. The driver pointed, Baskerville Hall, said he. Its master had risen and was staring with flushed cheeks and shining eyes. A few minutes later, we had reached the lodge gates, a maze of fantastic tracery in wrought iron with weather-beaten pillars on either side and surmounted by the boar's heads of the Baskervilles. The lodge was a ruin of black granite and bared ribs of rafters, but facing it was a new building, half-constructed, the first fruit of Sir Charles's South African gold. Through the gateway, we passed into the avenue, where the wheels were again hushed amid the leaves and the old trees shot their branches in a somber tunnel over our heads. Baskerville shuddered as he looked up the long, dark drive to where the house glimmered like a ghost at the farther end. Was it here? he asked in a low voice. No, no, said Mortimer. The U Alley is on the other side. 
The young heir glanced round with a gloomy face. It is no wonder my uncle felt as if trouble were coming on him in such a place as this, said he. It's enough to scare any man. I'll have a row of electric lamps up here inside of six months, and you won't know it again, with a thousand candle power, Swan and Edison, right here in front of the hall door. The avenue opened into a broad expanse of turf, and the house lay before us. In the fading light, I could see that the centre was a heavy block of building, from which a porch projected. The whole front was draped in ivy, with a patch clipped bare, here and there, where a window or a coat of arms broke through the dark veil. From this central block rose the two towers, ancient, crenellated, and pierced with many loopholes. To right and left of the turrets were more modern wings of black granite. A dull light shone through heavy mullioned windows and from the high chimneys which rose from the steep, high-angled roof, there sprang a single column of smoke. Welcome, Sir Henry. Welcome to Baskerville Hall. A tall man had stepped from the shadow of the porch to open the door of the wagonette. The figure of a woman was silhouetted against the yellow light of the hall. She came out and helped the man to hand down our bags. You don't mind my driving straight home, Sir Henry, said Dr. Mortimer. My wife is expecting me. Surely you will have some dinner, said he. Oh, no, I must go, the doctor replied. I shall probably find some work awaiting me. I would stay to show you over the house, but Barrymore here will be a better guide than I. Goodbye, and never hesitate night or day to send for me if I can be of service. The wheels died away down the drive while Sir Henry and I turned into the hall and the door clanged heavily behind us. It was a fine apartment in which we found ourselves, large, lofty, and heavily rafted with huge balks of aged blackened oak. In the great, old-fashioned fireplace behind the high-iron dogs, a log fire crackled and snapped. Sir Henry and I held out our hands to it, for we were numb from our long drive. Then we gazed round us at the high, thin window of old stained glass, the oak panelling, the stag's heads, the coats of arms upon the walls, all dim and somber in the subdued light of the central lamp. It's just as I imagined it, said Sir Henry. Is it not the very picture of an old family home? 
to think that this should be the same hall in which, for 500 years, my people have lived. It strikes me solemn to think of it. I saw his dark face lit up with a boyish enthusiasm as he gazed about him. The light beat upon him where he stood, but long shadows trailed down the walls and hung like a black canopy above him. Barrymore had returned from taking our luggage to our rooms. He stood in front of us now with the subdued manner of a well-trained servant. He was a remarkable-looking man, tall, handsome, with a square black beard and pale, distinguished features. Would you wish dinner to be served at once, sir? said he. Is it ready? asked Sir Henry. In a very few minutes, sir, answered Barrymore. You will find hot water in your rooms. My wife and I will be happy, Sir Henry, to stay with you until you have made your fresh arrangements. But you will understand that under the new conditions, this house will require a considerable staff. What new conditions? Sir Henry asked. I only meant, sir, that Sir Charles led a very retired life, and we were able to look after his wants, said Barrymore. You would naturally wish to have more company, so you will need changes in your household. Do you mean that your wife and you wish to leave? Sir Henry asked. Only when it is quite convenient to you, sir, said Barrymore. But your family have been with us for several generations, have they not? Said he. I should be sorry to begin my life here by breaking an old family connection. I seemed to discern some signs of emotion upon the butler's white face. I feel that also, sir, and so does my wife, he said. But to tell the truth, sir, we were both very much attached to Sir Charles, and his death gave us a shock and made these surroundings very painful to us. I fear that we shall never again be easy in our minds at Baskerville Hall. But what do you intend to do? Sir Henry asked. I have no doubt, sir, that we shall succeed in establishing ourselves in some business, he replied. Sir Charles's generosity has given us the means to do so. And now, sir, perhaps I best show you to your rooms. A square balustraded gallery ran around the top of the old hall approached by a double stair. From this central point, two long corridors extended the whole length of the building, from which the bedrooms opened. My own was in the same wing as Baskerville's and almost next door to it. These rooms appeared to be much more modern than the central part of the house, and the bright paper and numerous candles did something to remove the somber impression which our arrival had left upon my mind. 
But the dining room, which opened out of the hall, was a place of shadow and gloom. It was a long chamber, with a step separating the days where the family sat from the lower portion, reserved for their dependents. At one end, a minstrel's gallery overlooked it. Black beams shot across above our heads, with a smoke-darkened ceiling beyond them. With rows of flaring torches to light it up, and the color and rude hilarity of an old-time banquet, it might have softened. But now, when two black-clothed gentlemen sat in the little circle of light, thrown by a shaded lamp, one's voice became hushed and one's spirit subdued. A dim line of ancestors in every variety of dress, from the Elizabethan knight to the buck of the regency, stared down upon us and daunted us by their silent company. We talked little, and I for one was glad when the meal was over and we were able to retire into the modern billiard room and smoke a cigarette. My word, it isn't a very cheerful place, said Sir Henry. I suppose one can tone down to it, but I feel a bit out of the picture at present. I don't wonder that my uncle got a bit jumpy if he lived here all alone, in such a house as this. However, if it suits you, we will retire early tonight. Perhaps things may seem more cheerful in the morning. I drew aside my curtains before I went to bed and looked out from my window. It opened upon the grassy space which lay in the front of the hall door. Beyond, two copses of trees moaned and swung in a rising wind. A half-moon broke through the rifts of racing clouds. In its cold light, I saw beyond the trees a broken fringe of rocks and the long, low curve of the melancholy moor. I closed the curtain, feeling that my last impression was in keeping with the rest. And yet it was not quite the last. I found myself weary and yet wakeful, tossing restlessly from side to side, seeking for the sleep which would not come. Far away, a chiming clock struck out the quarters of the hours, but otherwise a deathly silence lay upon the old house. And then, suddenly, in the very dead of the night, there came a sound to my ears, clear, resonant, and unmistakable. It was the sob of a woman, the muffled, strangling gasp of one who is torn by an uncontrollable sorrow. I sat up in bed and listened intently. The noise could not have been far away, 
and was certainly in the house. For half an hour, I waited with every nerve on the alert, but there came no other sound save the chiming clock and the rustle of the ivy on the wall. Chapter 7 The Stapletons of Merripit House The fresh beauty of the following morning did something to efface from our minds the grim and grey impression which had been left upon both of us by our first experience of Baskerville Hall. As Sir Henry and I sat at breakfast, the sunlight flooded in through the high mullioned windows, throwing watery patches of colour from the coats of arms which covered them. The dark panelling glowed like bronze in the golden rays, and it was hard to realise that this was indeed the chamber which had struck such gloom into our souls upon the evening before. I guess it is ourselves and not the house that we have to blame, said the baronet. We were tired with our journey and chilled by our drive, so we took a grey view of the place. Now we are fresh and well, so it is cheerful once more. And yet, it was not entirely a question of imagination, I answered. Did you, for example, happen to hear someone, a woman, I think, sobbing in the night? That is curious, said Sir Henry, for I did, when I was half asleep, fancy that I heard something of the sort. I waited quite a time, but there was no more of it, so I concluded that it was all a dream. I heard it distinctly and I'm sure that it was really the sob of a woman, said I. We must ask about this right away. He rang the bell and asked Barrymore whether he could account for our experience. It seemed to me that the pallid features of the butler turned a shade paler still as he listened to his master's question. There are only two women in the house, Sir Henry, he answered. One is the scullery maid, who sleeps in the other wing, and the other is my wife, and I can answer for it that the sound could not have come from her. And yet, he lied as he said it, for it chanced that after breakfast, I met Mrs. Barrymore in the long corridor with the sun full upon her face. She was a large, impassive, heavy-featured woman with a stern, set expression of mouth, but her telltale eyes were red and glanced at me from between swollen lids. It was she, then, who wept in the night, and if she did so, her husband must know it. Yet he had taken the obvious risk of discovery in declaring that it was not so. Why had he done this? And why did she weep so bitterly? 
already round this pale-faced, handsome, black-bearded man, there was gathering an atmosphere of mystery and of gloom. It was he who had been the first to discover the body of Sir Charles, and we had only his word for all the circumstances which led up to the old man's death. Was it possible that it was Barrymore, after all, whom we had seen in the cab in Regent Street? The beard might well have been the same. The cabman had described a somewhat shorter man, but such an impression might easily have been erroneous. How could I settle on the point forever? Obviously, the first thing to do was to see the Grimpen postmaster and find whether the first telegram had really been placed in Barrymore's own hands. Be the answer what it might, I should at least have something to report to Sherlock Holmes. Sir Henry had numerous papers to examine after breakfast, so that the time was propitious for my excursion. It was a pleasant walk of four miles along the edge of the moor, leading me at last to a small grey hamlet in which two larger buildings, which proved to be the inn and the house of Dr. Mortimer, stood high above the rest. The postmaster, who was also the village grocer, had a clear recollection of the telegram. Certainly, sir, said he. I had the telegram delivered to Mr. Barrymore exactly as directed. Who delivered it? I asked. My boy here, he replied. James, who delivered that telegram to Mr. Barrymore at the hall last week, did you not? Yes, father, I delivered it, said the boy. Into his own hands, I asked. Well, he was up in the loft at the time, so that I could not put it into his own hands, the boy said. But I gave it to Mrs. Barrymore's hands, and she promised to deliver it at once. Did you see Mr. Barrymore? I asked. Uh, No, sir, the boy replied. We tell you he was in the loft. If you didn't see him... How do you know he was in the loft? I inquired. Well, surely his own wife ought to know where he is, said the postmaster testily. Didn't he get the telegram? If there is any mistake, it is for Mr. Barrymore himself to complain. <laughs>